You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay, gang, I'm going to do something that we all did in the seventh grade. You mean swap your vegetables for tater tots during lunch hour? I never did that, Molly. Now, let, let, <laughs> you probably ate your vegetables. Let's start with you taking this ping pong ball. Okay, I actually, you asked me to bring one, and I did. It's right here. All right. Put it right down there, Molly. Okay. All right, now that ping pong ball is the sun. Now, Molly, I want you to go stand where the Earth is, which isn't very far. It's about 14 feet away on this scale. We're creating a model of the solar system. Okay, I'll start walking. Tell me when to stop. All right, a little farther. Okay, back here? Yeah, farther, farther. All right, feet. here? Almost, just another couple of feet. Yeah, okay, you're Earth. That's Earth. What? Yeah. Okay, uh, Jay, Gary, Keith, we're going to need you guys too. Okay. All right. Now, the Earth doesn't seem like it's very far from this ping pong ball. 14 feet, that's equivalent to 93 million miles. All right, now let's do Mars. So that will be about 21 feet from the ping pong ball, more or less two car lengths. Keith, you willing to uh, play the part of the red planet? Sure, Seth, but I wore blue today. Yeah, that's okay. Are you wearing a polar cap? All right, so you just start walking. All right. In Mars orbit, when you see something there that looks like Mars orbit. Is this far enough? Uh, another foot or so. That's about it. Well, Seth is not out of his mind. This is Out of This World, though, on Are We Alone? I'm Molly Bentley in a parking lot with Gary Niederhoff, Jay Weiler, and Keith Rosendahl. You're there. Coming up, results of the Kepler planet hunting mission and more. Okay, Mars. Now, Mars on this scale is just a pencil dot. So let's move on to the gas giants, so-called outer solar system. And we'll start with Jupiter. Gary, you want to be a Jupiter stand-in? Yeah, I even wore my striped shirt today. Okay, Gary, you're going to be about 70 feet from this here ping-pong ball. That's about eight parking spaces down that away. Okay, is this good? Yeah, a little closer to the blue sedan there. How about here? And Saturn will be another eight spaces beyond that. Now, Jupiter and Saturn were the principal targets for the Voyager spacecraft, which was launched in 1977. The two Voyager probes, their deal was to fly by these big worlds, making photos of both of them and their moons. Then they kept going and photographed Uranus and Neptune. So... Where is Voyager 1 now? Well, it's farther away than any other spacecraft, any other human-made thing. It's more than 10 billion miles away, and that's three times farther than Pluto. Okay, Jay, you're going to be Voyager 1. Okay, awesome. And that's about three-tenths of a mile. Wait, what? Yeah, uh, half a kilometer, Jay. Five football fields. So you see that gas station down the street there? Are, are you serious? Don't worry, it's a good neighborhood. You mean that gas station all the way over there? Seth, isn't that kind of far? I mean, it's not even in the parking lot. It's almost to the next town. Well, okay, but that's what we're trying to do here with this model of the solar system, Molly, to point out the enormous distances to the things we're going to be talking about in this show. The solar system's big. It's mostly empty. Am I far enough yet? No, no, no. You reached that point in 1980. Keep going. Can I stop now? Well, what about the planets that were recently discovered by NASA's Kepler telescope? You know, more than a thousand new worlds were found. Well, the new Kepler planets are more like 1,000 light years away, which on the scale of this parking lot model would be two-thirds of the way to the moon. Hey, you okay, Jay? What? Well, the Kepler mission was named after the astronomer Johannes Kepler, and this telescope was built with a photometer, which is basically a light meter. It just stares at lots and lots of stars, carefully looking for changes in their brightness. Hey guys, I'm gonna get one of these creamsicles. Do you want one? So how does that tell you anything about planets? Well, if lots of planets are out there, some will occasionally cross in front of their home stars, causing a very, very slight decrease in their brightness, a mini eclipse, if you will. Now, you couldn't easily detect that slight dimming here on Earth because the atmosphere kind of messes things up. But in space, 
where the Kepler telescope is. Not only is Kepler finding planets, it's finding them by the bucket load. But even so, scientists were surprised by the discovery of more than a thousand candidate planets outside our solar system. That about triples the number of exoplanets that we know about. Okay, you guys, we're going to come back to you in a little while, so just stay put. You can orbit a bit if you want. That's all right. I have my moons to keep me company. I'm okay. That's cool. I got this creamsicle. So, why is this exciting? Well, clearly it's a big news story for anyone interested in life in the universe. Especially given that 68 of these planets were one and a quarter the size of Earth or smaller. 54 are in the so-called habitable zone at a distance from their home star where water on the surface would neither boil nor freeze. It's a big discovery, a big step toward answering the question of how common other Earths are. That's the job of the Kepler scientists, and Seth rounded up some of the planet-hunting team. John Jenkins, co-I for data analysis with the Kepler mission. Doug Caldwell, I'm co-investigator and instrument scientist for Kepler. Jesse Christensen, data scientist working on the Kepler mission. And John Jenkins told me why, as one journalist put it, it's an incredible haul. Well, up till now, we've only discovered 500 planets outside our solar system. And so this phenomenal success story for Kepler will triple the number of planets that we know outside the solar system. And beyond that, beyond simply being a cornucopia of extrasolar planets rolling off the assembly line at the rate of 10 per day, we know now a lot more about small planets. And so we have 68 Earth-sized planet candidates that have been identified by Kepler, and 54 of those are potentially habitable. So this is something that's completely new and is turning everything upside down. 20 years ago, no one knew about planets outside our solar system, and today we know of 54 potentially habitable worlds. Similar- Jesse, when he says potentially habitable, I mean, what does that mean? Can you build condos on them? What, 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 what's the definition of potentially habitable? Well, we're using a very simple definition at the moment, which is that we believe the temperature of the planet has to be able to support liquid water. So we actually are quite conservative because the planet could have an atmosphere which actually could warm it up. So we say from minus 50 degrees Celsius to 100 degrees Celsius is the range that a planet would be able to have liquid water. But maybe you should explain how we would possibly know what the temperature might be on one of these planets because we don't have any thermometers on these worlds. We can't even see them, right? Kepler actually happens to be one of the world's best thermometers in space. (laughs) That's right. When you build these really sensitive instruments, you learn that what you're really building is an incredibly sensitive thermometer. How we know the temperature of these planets is the temperature of the star and the distance of the planet from the star. If it's a very hot star and the planet's very close, then the planet's going to be roasting hot. We've actually found planets that are so hot that lead would be molten. We'd have molten lead. And then as you get further and further away from the sky, you start to get into more temperate, tropical, you know, let's have a holiday there sorts of zones. Doug, I mean, John said that we've found more than 500 planets in the last 15, 16 years, Mm. and, and none of them have met these minimum requirements. I mean, that sort of suggests that the kind of planets where, you know, lead won't melt on the surface are kind of rare. Well, there's been a few that have been in, in their habitable zones. The thing that Kepler's done that hasn't been done before is start to find smaller planets that could potentially have solid surfaces on which water could rest. Most of the planets that have been found to date are much bigger, more like Neptune, Saturn, and Jupiter. Well, John, can you tell me in two sentences how it works? Because it's not looking for wobbling stars or any of the usual tricks. Well, essentially what Kepler does is observe 156,000 stars simultaneously to look for shadows of planets as they cross in front of the star from our viewpoint. It's similar to a solar eclipse, except for it's a much smaller effect. Okay, so uh, all, all that Kepler's doing is just sort of measuring the brightness of these stars forever? That's right. We're staring at 150,000 stars for three and a half years uh, to monitor uh, the brightnesses of these stars. And the reason it's three and a half years is an Earth-sized planet in a habitable zone orbit around a sun-like star takes a year, like the Earth, to orbit its sun. And we want to get multiple events in order to really be confident that this is a transiting planet. Okay, uh, but of course we don't know whether there's any life on any of these worlds, right? Right. Okay. Uh, Not yet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know... uh, Of course, some people are still looking for intelligent life here on Earth. Yes. Well, uh, there's some chance they may find that. But, okay, I mean, we we actually, we don't even know if they have oceans or atmospheres, even the 50 of these worlds that are thought to be possibly habitable. I mean, all we know is something about the temperatures that they might have, right? Do do we know any more than that? It's a little bit worse than that in that we actually don't even know for sure that these are all planets. Um, One of the problems with with Kepler, the difficulties, is actually confirming these things. And we've, in the past, all the planets that have been found are usually followed up with other techniques from the ground, and people make different measurements. 
with Kepler, we're getting so many and and planets that are so small that they just can't be followed up in a reasonable time from the ground. So we've we've released a set of candidates, and and we're pretty confident that the majority of those are really planets. But we can't say for sure this one is a planet yet, except for a, a sort of a small number of them. And the other thing of interest is that the Kepler data show that nature seems to love to make smaller planets. And so we see a much larger number of super-Earths compared to the Neptune-sized planets compared to the Jupiters. And so this is something that people, uh, some people expected to see, and it's very gratifying because we see this in our own solar system that there are very few large bodies like Jupiter. There are more smaller bodies as you go down. So there are many more asteroids and many more meteors and dust grains as you go down to smaller and smaller sizes. And unlike in so many things, uh, when it comes to life, smaller is better in this case. Smaller planets are likely to be what they call rocky planets. Uh, I assume that doesn't mean that they appeal only to alpine climbers. Uh, what, what do you mean by a rocky <laughs> planet, Jesse? So a rocky planet... Um, they have great music, great <laughs> bands playing on them. In fact, that may be the first way we tell that these things are inhabited, by looking at them with the Allen Telescope Array. <laughs> and catching a concert being broadcast in our direction. <laughs> those, those are rock planets, yes. <laughs> That's indeed. right. Okay, so what we can do with Kepler is find the size of these planets, and if they are the sorts of planets where we can find the mass, we can use that to find a density. So you have the size and you have the mass, so you can work out an average density. Now, for Jupiter and Saturn, the big gas giants in our solar system, the density is lower because they're mostly hydrogen and helium gas. It's been said, I've, I've, I've even said it myself in dinnertime conversation with my relatives that this is one of the most interesting scientific experiments going on in the world today. But, but is that hype? I mean, do, do you really feel that this is one of the, the most interesting things going on? I mean, you work for this project, so presumably you do. But can you justify that? Absolutely. When I got this job on Kepler, it was the most exciting thing because this is going to answer one of the big questions we have. It's the question of this show. Are we alone? It's going to tell us how many Earths there are nearby. And that's going to be one of the most important things in that equation, the Drake equation, which is the frequency of planets that could be habitable. Well, uh, do you, have there been any nail-biting moments, Jesse? I mean, what, was there any time during the whole enterprise, the Kepler enterprise, where you thought, you know, maybe this isn't going to work and I'm just not going to have a job here? That hasn't happened yet. I have worked on other space missions, so I'm not going to hold my breath, but I'm very, very, very excited by what we've seen so far. Every time more data comes down, everyone looks at it and just sees something new. You see things you haven't seen before because the precision of the data is so high. And, and Doug, when you talk to, you know, mm -hmm. just people who are not in science, and you tell them what you do, you know, people ask you what you do for a living, and you say, you know, you're looking, you're looking at 150,000 stars. Do they find it exciting? I think they do, and I think that's sort of was one of the things that attracted me to this project, too, is I can understand it, and, and the, the concepts are very simple. <laughs> um, and, and I think people really do resonate with this idea of, you know, what are you doing? We're looking to find out how common planets like the Earth are. It's, it is a very simple and very powerful concept that everybody has been wondering about for thousands of years. I myself have not been wondering about it for thousands well. of years, but <laughs> I can confess that as a, as a kid, I would lie in the grass in the summertime looking up at the stars and wondering whether there were other beings on planets around those stars looking up into their sky in our direction wondering the same thing. So I think this mission is poised to answer a fundamental question that just resonates with all of us. And it's such a thrill to be a part of this. You can imagine back to when Columbus discovered the New World, that within a few decades, uh, other explorers had gone out and mapped out the, the North American continent and the South American continent. And we finally had a complete picture, at least at a rough level, of what the world really looked like. And so the same thing is happening right now. 15 years ago, we discovered the first extrasolar planet. And now we've mapped out, essentially, most of the parameter space with respect to giant planets in short period orbits. But over the next few years, Kepler is going to complete the map, not just for giant planets like Jupiter, not just for Saturns and Uranuses and Neptunes, but for Earth-sized planets. Okay. People often will ask, you know, what's, how does this affect SETI, of course? And now, most directly, we've already used the Allen Telescope Array to look at these 50 candidate systems that might have planets somewhat like the Earth. Uh, no signals so far. But on the other hand, you could have looked at Earth uh, with a radio antenna for four billion years and not, you know, picked up <laughs> I Love Lucy. So maybe that doesn't mean much. You, you really need a very, very long list. But on the other hand, if it turns out that you guys can show that there are billions of habitable worlds just in the galaxy, how do you see that playing out in terms of funding for, you know, these other projects, such as SETI, for example, <laughs> that, that might be able to follow up in the sense of saying, look, you know, it's hard to believe that, uh, that this is the only world with life now. 
I, I think it certainly helps because you you eliminate the you know the naysayers who just say oh there's nothing out there there's not even any planets to live on we you know we we can we don't know yet for sure but but hopefully Kepler will tell us we can say well yeah there are lots of planets out there like us you know like our like our Earth. Well, 20 years ago, the topic of extrasolar planets was treated as science fiction, even among planetary scientists, and in part because there were a few instances where people claimed detections they had to be retracted. And so it is a very difficult problem, and we're very fortunate to now have the technology to be able to approach this problem. But I think what Kepler is going to do is provides a watershed of results that completely revolutionize extrasolar planet research, but also completely revolutionizes other fields of astronomy and astrophysics. And it's so exciting to the public. The Allen Telescope Array isn't just about finding steady signals. It also provides a wealth of other science results that are quite exciting in and of their own right. And so why not use all the tools at your disposal to answer this ultimate question that everybody wants to know the answer to? Why not? I want to thank the three of you. John Jenkins, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you, Seth, for having us. Doug Caldwell, thanks. You're welcome. It was great to be here. And Jesse Christensen, thanks to you. It was a pleasure. The scientists whose job it is to round up planets include Jesse Christensen, a data scientist on the Kepler mission, John Jenkins, co-PI, and Doug Caldwell, a co-investigator and instrument scientist for the Kepler mission. Okay, everybody, Molly, Keith, Jay, Gary, stay in orbit. Okay. All right. What? We'll be getting right back to you. Coming up the first bit of hardware to leave the solar system. You're listening to Out of This World on Are We Alone? Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. NASA's planet hunting spacecraft has netted a bucket full of planets outside our solar system. 54 of these other worlds orbit their home stars in the so-called habitable zone. Now, we've been talking about this discovery here on Are We Alone? because it is a big step forward in answering the question of whether there are other Earths out there and possibly life. Now, Seth, you've assembled us in this parking lot to create a model of the solar system. Yeah, well, that's because I want to give you a sense of the scale, Molly. Now, I'm standing next to the ping pong ball, which on this scale is the sun. Uh, Planets, uh, identify yourself. Well, I'm Earth. And Molly, you're 14 feet from the ping pong ball, and that represents 93 million miles. Mars here. Okay, that's Keith, and he's about one and a half times as far from the ball as Mother Earth, Molly. And then there's Gary. I'm Jupiter. You can tell by the big red spot. He's 70 feet away, halfway to the end of the parking lot, and that's roughly a half billion miles. And finally, Jay, he's the farthest human-made hardware, Voyager 1, three billion miles, or about four blocks away. Hi, guys. All right, everybody hang tight. Okay. All right. right. Sure. What? The Kepler stars, Seth, are farther than Voyager, what Jay represents, aren't they? Could we ever travel to those stars? No, they're really much too far, Molly. The Kepler stars, which, after all, on this scale are just other ping-pong balls, are, you know, as far away as the moon. So you see, the stars really are. They're, they're just too far. And traveling to them, even with our fastest rockets, would take about 25 million years. Okay, well, what is the farthest that we've traveled from Earth? Well, humans have only gone as far as the moon, of course. But the farthest rocket ride has been taken by this spacecraft we've been talking about, the Voyager spacecraft. The twin Voyagers were launched in 1977, and Voyager 1 is now poised to leave the solar system altogether. That will make it the farthest human-made object from Earth. So on our scale, that's Jay over four blocks away. Hi, Jay. Hi. Now, Seth, how fast is Voyager 1 moving? Well, on the scale of this parking lot, that would be about two feet every year. So that's slower than a six snail. And yet the spacecraft is still working. Yeah, and that's a real testament to the quality of the engineering because, you know, its power sources are still working. It still can send back data. The purpose of the mission was mainly to take pictures of Jupiter and Saturn and their moons and then learn what it could about Uranus and Neptune. And by the way, there's also a record fastened to the outside of the craft in case, you know, it's ever picked up by aliens. 
Scientists Carl Sagan and Frank Drake, together with space artist John Lomberg, put that together. The project scientist for the Voyager mission was Ed Stone. He's your rocket scientist scientist in charge of the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, during the golden age of space exploration. He got into the biz early in 1961 with the charge particle detector aboard Discoverer 36. Today, he's a physicist at the California Institute of Technology. Ed. Let's begin with the opening of the space age. I'm sure everyone will agree that that dates to the launching in 1957 of Sputnik. This affected you personally. That's right. I was a graduate student at the University of Chicago at the time, trying to decide what to do. I was thinking about nuclear physics, and then the space age began. And the first great discovery of the Van Allen trapped radiation really revealed that this was a whole new region of exploration. Well, did this suddenly appeal to you because of the, the glamour of it or, you know, just the kinds of questions you could possibly answer by putting instruments into space? I was interested in building instruments and observing things, and clearly sending things into space opened up a whole new set of frontiers for exploration. You were in the spotlight rather soon after that, were you not? Tell us how you actually got into the space business, because, you know, Sputnik, you were in grad school. You were just another student. I was another student. Fortunately, there was a professor at Chicago, John Simpson. He wanted to also go into space, and I uh, built an experiment to be launched on a Discover satellite in December of 1961, trying to observe particles coming from the sun. And were you at Caltech already? Or I were... was at the University of Chicago at the time, and when I finished my degree, then I came to Caltech to join in setting up a new space physics group at Caltech. So you got involved with that. Were you interested in the planets per se? Most of what you've discussed here so far involves, if you will, particles in space, the environment of the solar system, but not the bodies of the solar system. That's right. That's the way I got my start. We uh, had a number of missions trying to understand and observe these energetic particles which fill the space around the Earth. But since Caltech runs JPL for NASA, uh, when the uh, Voyager mission began in the early 70s, they asked me to spend part of my time as a Caltech professor at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory to become the chief scientist or the project scientist for this new mission, which at that time was called Mariner-Jupiter-Saturn 1977. Well, I have to say that for me, that doesn't seem so long ago, the Voyager mission, but probably for many of our listeners, you know, it's somewhat ancient history. Maybe you could describe a little bit what the motivation was for Voyager, where it was going to go, and what people hoped it would show. Every 176 years, it turns out, the four giant outer planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, are lined up on the same side of the sun in such a way that a single spacecraft can visit all four. The magic year for that was 1977, and in 1972, NASA won approval for the first steps of that Grand Tour mission. So it was going to fly by the big planets of the outer solar system, obviously Jupiter and Saturn. What about Uranus and Neptune? Because of the challenge of building a spacecraft to last so long in space, the initial goal was a four-year mission flying by Jupiter and Saturn, but with the capability, if everything continued to work well, to send one of those two spacecraft on to an encounter with Uranus and then finally an encounter with Neptune. Now there were two, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, but they were both doing more or less the same thing. Why the redundancy? In those days, perhaps one out of two spacecraft actually could survive, would survive the launch and would survive the journey deep into space. And so the plan was to fly Voyager 1 to do Jupiter and Saturn. If that succeeded, then we would allow Voyager 2 to sort of ignore Saturn to a certain extent and fly by it in such a way that it was headed toward Uranus. And then once we reached Uranus in 1986, we were given the go-ahead for another few years to reach Neptune in 1989. Okay, so it was redundancy in order to get something for sure out of the mission, or at least with a very high probability. We don't seem to do that anymore, do we? I mean, do we, we, we don't seem to have backup missions, as it were, when we send something to Mars or to the outer solar system today, we send one spacecraft, and if it fails, that's just bad news. Yes, that's normally the case now, because we do know how to do these things much better than we did 30-some years ago. But I should point out that when two rovers landed on Mars in 2004, there were two, because of the challenge of landing. It was such a great challenge that uh, we decided we should do two, not just one. You know, Ed, I find it somewhat ironic that you had this backup plan with two of these things, and yet the Voyager spacecraft were so well built, they're still functioning. It's going on, what, a close to 40 years or 35 years, something like that. 
Yes, it's quite remarkable. They are very robust, very good system engineering, very long-lived power supplies. The radioactive decay of plutonium-238 has an 88-year half-life. And we had very radiation-hard parts because of the Jupiter environment. So we built into the spacecraft a very long life. Where are these spacecraft now, and what are they doing? Well, they're exploring the bubble around the sun. The sun has a solar wind blowing its atmosphere, blows radially outward at uh, about a million miles per hour. And so that bubble surrounds all the planets. In fact, the two voyagers, even though not one of them is now 11 billion miles from Earth and the other is 9 billion miles from Earth, are still inside the bubble. But outside the bubble is interstellar space, and we're now very near the edge of that bubble. And I think in the next three or four years, Voyager 1 could actually leave the bubble for the first time and enter interstellar space, where it would be surrounded by matter that has come from other stars than our own sun. Okay, well, let me just get this straight. When you say, you know, 9 billion miles or so, that's, you know, how far compared to, say, the distance to Pluto? I like to think of it in astronomical units. The Earth's at one astronomical unit from the sun. That's 93 million miles. Pluto right now is just a little bit beyond 30 astronomical units. Voyager 1 is at 115 astronomical units. It's almost four times as far away as Pluto. Okay, so these guys are about to leave the solar system in some way. People probably wonder, what do you mean to leave the solar system? There's no sign there that says last gas before leaving the <laughs> solar system, presumably. But in a sense, it is the last gas before you enter the space that's outside the solar system. How is it defined? How, how do we know when we've reached the edge of our solar system? Well, this wind that comes from the sun, as it approaches contact with the interstellar wind outside, it has to slow down and turn and head down the tail. The heliosphere is a comet-shaped object because there's an interstellar wind which is coming from a particular direction which drags this bubble out into a long comet-like tail. And all the wind from the sun has to turn and go down that tail. It cannot mix very much with the interstellar wind outside because of the embedded magnetic field. So we can tell we're getting close to this boundary, to the edge of the heliosphere, because the wind now on Voyager 1 is no longer moving radially outward. It is now turned and is heading away from the radial direction. These are the first spacecraft, of course, to make it to this distance from the sun. Yes, that's correct. These are the, yes, they are, and they will be the first to reach interstellar space. When will that happen, more or less? I mean, is it on a Tuesday? When, when, when is that? <laughs> well, we don't know, of course, since no spacecraft has ever been there before. But right now, my guess is that somewhere in the next four or five years, Voyager 1 will actually leave the bubble, cross from inside the bubble where that's material from the sun to outside the bubble where it's material from a supernova, which blew up five or ten million years ago. I'm talking with Caltech physicist Ed Stone. Ed, Voyager is famous in the public's mind for carrying greeting cards on its uh, <laughs> yeah. exterior there. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about where the idea for these Voyager messages and what they are came from. We asked Carl Sagan to set up a committee to design some sort of message from Earth. The Pioneer spacecraft had plaques, but they decided, the committee decided it would be nice to actually have a record. Now, this is an analog grooved record, but nevertheless, it has on it images of Earth, languages of Earth, music of Earth, greetings from Earth, trying to send a picture, if you like, of the planet, which in fact, for the first time, could reach out and leave its own solar system. Well, you say it's a record. And, you know, a lot of young people today probably wouldn't know how to build a phonograph. Will the aliens know how? Well, we hope so, but we did include a phonograph cartridge. Hopefully they will, from the cover of the record, will know that they should put this record on a turntable and use the cartridge to uh, get an electrical signal out of the groove in the record. So they, in fact, uh, have a little bit of a diagram of how to play this record or what a record is. So it's a record that has pictures, sounds. Can you describe some of the things that are on that record? Well, the pictures are intended to show Earth as much as you can in 110 images. So it obviously has pictures of humans, but it also has pictures of nature. It has sounds of nature. It has music from around the world. It has many different languages, greetings in many different languages. So it's an attempt in a very compact way to portray Earth and the civilization of Earth, which has sent this greeting. Now, one thing that might occur, particularly after some comments by Stephen Hawking not so long ago, is that sending our location into space, if you will, a map of the stars' homes, <laughs> such as they hand out around the Hollywood area, that that might not be a good idea. Did anybody worry about the fact that these things could be tracked back to the Earth? 
I'm not aware that anyone really seriously worried about it. I think even those who made the record realized that it was very unlikely this record would ever be found. From my point of view, it's really a message for all of us on Earth that somehow we had gotten to the point where we could send such a message. People will think that the Voyager probes are on their way to the stars because, in fact, they are on their way to the stars. But it's going to be a very long trip for them. I mean, they're three times as far as Pluto, yes, but how long will it take them to get to the stars? The Voyager spacecraft will be closer to another star than the sun in about 40,000 years. And it still won't be very close because it'll be a long way from the sun at that point. So uh, the space is really empty, and it's very unlikely the Voyager spacecraft will come close to any other star, as close as it is today to the sun. Well, would we be able today to send something that could reach the stars in some, I don't know what is a reasonable length of time, but say a century or something like that? Or is this going to be outside our capabilities for a long time. What do you think? I think it's outside of our capabilities for a very long time. The best we can hope is that we can somehow remotely sense life on other planets and maybe eventually intelligent life on other planets. But it will have to be done, I think, by remote sensing. But we now know there are many, many other planetary systems, and the challenge will be finding one where life has begun and perhaps where it has evolved. One of the most interesting discoveries, I think, in the space biz in the past couple of years is learning more about the outer solar system once you get beyond Mars, you know, Jupiter, Saturn, and beyond, and finding that there are even worlds out there, moons, that might be hospitable for life. We have some spacecraft examining the system at Saturn, and we have one on the way to Pluto, come to think of it. Are we planning to send other missions to the outer solar system? There are plans to go back to Jupiter to look at the moons of Jupiter, in particular, of course, Europa, which we believe has a liquid water ocean beneath its icy crust, and to put a spacecraft into orbit around Europa in order to very carefully map its surface to see if there are areas on the surface where, in fact, fresh cracks have developed and perhaps fluid from beneath the surface has come out. And in any case, to try to better understand how deep that ocean might be and how one might actually be able to get down to it and see if, in fact, life is there in that ocean. So you're looking for thin spots in the icy skin of Europa to eventually send uh, some robotic probe to drill a hole and go down and look at what's underneath. I think that's certainly something that we would like to think about and step by step try to explore Europa. There have been some editorials and stories, I'm sure you've seen them, in the papers not too long ago here, suggesting that maybe NASA has lost its way, that it's missing the vision thing, that we don't take on the big questions, the big projects, particularly in the manned space program these days. Is that true? And if it's true, how can we fix that? I think in the robotic program, which is the one that I'm most familiar with, there is a big vision, and that is the search for life. There are a number of places in the solar system where there may have been life and where there may be life. We've just talked about Europa. Certainly Enceladus has geysers erupting from its south polar region. That suggests that there may be liquid water and suggests the possibility of life. And then there's Titan, which has an atmosphere which is mainly nitrogen-like here on Earth, but rather than oxygen, has methane and all the interesting organic molecules which result from the photochemistry of that methane. Another world that we will want to explore in detail. And is NASA actually pursuing these projects, or are they all on hold waiting the development of new hardware or whatever? I mean, is the budget adequate to pursue these in a timely way, or are we going to be, you know, beaten to the punch? I think that the budget at NASA is clearly a serious challenge for the program, especially in the human spaceflight area. But I do believe that the robotic exploration program is something that we will find a way to continue. Finally, Ed, I like to think that we've just barely stuck our toes into the shores of discovery, that you are like one of the first explorers of the new world, and that a giant door has opened in front of us. But is that all just romantic nonsense? I mean, there are polls that show that a substantial fraction of the population believes that NASA should be just shut down. They don't see the value in it. I think there is still a lot of interest in the NASA missions. Rovers, when they landed on Mars some years ago, attracted a huge interest on the web. One of the nice things these days is that, in fact, one can participate in exploration because of the web. That's one activity which will, I think, further increase the interest in the program is by being able to be there, if you like, online when the rovers are roving on Mars or when the the missions are at Titan or wherever they are in the solar system. There's still much to be learned. There's still very vast frontiers in the solar system. 
Ed Stone, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Ed Stone is a physicist at the California Institute of Technology. He's a member of the National Academy of Sciences and the former director of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He's been a principal investigator on many NASA spacecraft missions. He was the project scientist for the Voyager mission to the outer solar system. To see a photo of the Voyager record that he describes and hear some sounds from it, go to our blog, Are We a Blog? Coming up, more solar system in a parking lot and more out of this world science. But this time, the alien world is going to be Hollywood. And it's out of this world for different reasons. Don't these guys have fact checkers? It's Are We Alone? With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science, wherever you get your podcasts. Here we are on a sunny day. Seth, Gary, Jay, Keith, and I standing in a parking lot. Human models in Seth's miniature model of the solar system. I'm not in the lot. So, Seth, we heard from Ed Stone that the Voyager spacecraft will keep going, and in five years' time, it will pass out of the solar system. Well, that's right. And remember on our scale here where the sun's a ping-pong ball and Earth is a fly speck 14 feet away, that would be a block or so even beyond where Jay is, a lot farther than where so many of our spacecraft have gone in the past. Mars, played by Keith over there. These rovers are making me itch. In Star Trek The Motion Picture, Voyager's already left the solar system. How is that? In the movie, robotic aliens adopt Voyager, only they call it V'ger. And it's not Voyager 1 or 2, it's Voyager 6. So we can assume it's a new generation of Voyager. Anyway, they find this thing, think it's alive, and send the spacecraft back to Earth to its creator. They think it's alive? Well, they're sentient robots, so to them, robots are alive. What are you guys talking about over there? That's interesting, Gary, but the aliens would really have a tough time finding Voyager, whether it's Voyager 1 or 2 or even 6, if they ever make a 6. And that's because it's somewhere out there beyond the solar system, in the, in the realm of the stars, in the depths of space. It's the size of a VW Beetle. It's dark. Its radio transmitters are aimed only at the Earth. It would be like finding a speck of dust somewhere in a football stadium. The rest of the movie was pretty accurate, though. Yeah, right. Like the replacement of one of the characters with a doppelganger. Yeah, I don't think we've got that technology yet. But Gary does raise a good point about Hollywood science, if that isn't an oxymoron. That's right. The town can play fast and loose with science facts. In the movie Armageddon, scientists blow up a near-Earth asteroid, which is both difficult and wrong because... Well, to begin with, you don't want to blow it up because it was so close to Earth already. You blew it up. All you did was you turned a, a rifle bullet into buckshot. Not good. And in the day the Earth stood still, aliens come to see our world to save us from environmental catastrophe. Why is that outrageous? Well, for lots of reasons. But to begin with, the news about global climate change still hasn't reached them. Those broadcasts aren't far enough out into space. So does Hollywood ever get it right? Well, lab coats get more respect than you might imagine in the imagination of Hollywood. So where would Hollywood be on our scale here in the parking lot? Well, it's inside that ballpoint pen dot. That's Earth. That's you, Molly. You're just a scaled-up version of that dot. So it's on the Earth, but, you know, the science can really be out of this world. Hey, can you guys, Mars, Jupiter, Voyager 1, can you guys hang on a little bit longer? All right, sure. Doesn't feel like work. Okay, I'm going to sit down, though. Well, I asked Jennifer Ouellette, a writer who's been working as a liaison between Tinseltown producers and the National Academy of Sciences, on a program to make sci-fi movies more scientifically accurate, and we were joined by Seth himself when we all attended a recent gathering of space scientists. First, on the subject of scientists themselves, I asked Jennifer, is the popular perception of the scientists and the lab coat still how it is today? I don't think so, and this is something that I think I've argued with a couple of people about, because I just recently saw a documentary called Monsters of the Id, where they basically featured films, B-movie films from the 1950s, and their premise was that this presented the scientist as hero, but it was a white male scientist in a lab coat over and over and over again, and there was always a mad scientist that he was going up against. So I think that's where the stereotypes come from. But I think if you fast forward to the 21st century and you flip through channels, what you're actually seeing are men, women, 
all colors, all shapes, all sizes, who are doing all different kinds of science. You see much more diversity. You still have the stereotypes, you still have the mad scientist occasionally, but by and large you see a much broader swathe of kinds of scientists and what they look like out there. Now, Seth, where does this image of the mad scientist come from? Why does he have to be mad and crazy? Well, uh, mad, they're, they're not mad in uh, sort of a clinical sense. They're simply not in touch with reality. And I think part of it, the problem is that they have to get those white lab coats sent out laundered, light starch, and bleached all the time. And that would make anyone a little bit nutty. But perhaps it comes from, in fact, Shelley. Mary Shelley, that is. You know, Dr. Frankenstein, those, those sorts of stories, these Gothic tales from Europe may have colored our view of what a scientist should be like. Because if you actually go into a lab, even in the time of these films in the 1950s and saw somebody working in there, they didn't bear any resemblance to the TV scientists that you saw. They needed somebody iconic that you can identify right away. This is a scientist. He's getting in the way. We have to do something about whatever the threat is. Now, Jennifer, there's a program or a collaboration at the National Academy of Sciences between science and entertainment. And I think for some people who are scientists, they would find offense at this collaboration. But I think you're approaching it in a different way, that this is a way to benefit science. Right, and I think that it's very significant that the National Academy of Sciences is sponsoring this program. It's only it's about two years old. It hasn't been around that long. But the Academy recognizes that it's really only by entering into conversation with the actual people who are making the films and television programs that we have any chance of getting a more positive message in there, getting better science, more accurate science in there, getting better portrayals of scientists. And we're able to do that in part because we're partnering with Janet and Jerry Zucker, who are a, a producer, director, husband-wife team. They did Ghost and the Airplane movies, among other things. So they have essentially put us in touch with movers and shakers in Hollywood. So it's much more of a partnership rather than scientists swooping in and wagging a finger at Hollywood. But what does it matter how science is portrayed in Hollywood, in film, or in television? It's mass communication on a scale that I think the scientific community, bless their hearts, we just have not been all that good at grabbing the imagination and really storytelling and, and creating really wonderful, vibrant characters. I'm a, a science writer as well, and I interview a lot of scientists, like Seth here, and invariably they are going to cite books, film, television, science fiction. These sorts of things are what made them want to become a scientist. It's a tremendously powerful medium. Is that true, Seth? Did you become a scientist because of popular image, of something you saw in the movies, for example? Oh, absolutely. When I was 10 years old, every weekend I was going to the local movie theater to watch yet another one of the creature features that were uh, such a feature of the early 1950s. And in fact, uh, you know, even though those films made me sick, physically ill, I would, I would throw up all night long. My mom would say, you're not going to the movies next weekend. Mom, mom you're wrong. I am going. Cause Just I, from I kept fear. Up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they were so scary. But on the other hand, they got me really interested in these, these sorts of problems. Could there really be life in space? Could it be that there are, there, there are Mesozoic monsters under the ice and all we have to do is detonate a bomb and we can defrost them? All those sorts of themes that were very common at the beginning of the Cold War. And the fact that they were scientifically inaccurate, and they were, because if I look at these films on late night television today, they, you know, it's, most of it is quite bonkers science, but they grab you emotionally. They did, and then I would go to the library and I would pick out a book on uh, astronomy or whatever. Now, Seth is raising another issue here because we were talking about images of, of scientists in the movies and in television, but this is a question of accuracy, and that's a whole separate issue. And is it important that Hollywood be accurate, or does the National Academies of Science think they should be accurate when they talk about science? Because the purpose of entertainment is also to grab people and to use imaginative scenarios to do so. Yes and no, I think, is, is my answer. That Yes, we care to a certain extent about accuracy, but I think it's also important to realize that the story is paramount. And as Seth said, I mean, a lot of the science in the movies that he saw, he was inspired to become a scientist by watching all these B-movies. You look at them today and the science is awful. Example? I can give you endless examples. I suggest to you that you take a, an ant colony and you put it next to a nuclear test site and drop your bomb and see if the ants become 10 feet high at the shoulder. If you take a real ant and scale him up to 10 feet, he collapses under his own weight. <laughs> so Jennifer, what, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe it doesn't matter as long as we get people in to watch these, these movies. I think it can matter a little. In general, I think I would agree with you. I think I'm more concerned about the images of science and that the process of science be portrayed rather than that the facts are correct. In 
part because science continues to progress and something that was accurate 10 years ago might not be true now. Um, that's certainly the case for something like From the Earth to the Moon. That was a, a novel by Jules Verne that got made into a silent movie where they essentially shoot a bunch of scientists in a little cannon up to the moon. And it's ridiculous when we look at it now, but based on the technology and the science that they knew at the time, it was very accurate. So it's important in as much it can help you tell a better story. And I would argue that sometimes having the exact or, or more accurate science can be helpful. If you've got a plot and you're trying to get from plot point A to plot point B and you think you can get it that way, and a scientist comes in and says, well, no, that actually won't work and here's why, but there's something even cooler that you don't know about in science, and it's real, that it will get you from A to B in a really interesting and novel way that has never been done before. And that's what we hope to bring. What have the studies been on the correlation between the sophistication or the accuracy of science in Hollywood and public understanding, public literacy of science? There have been only a few. Uh, one of the people who is studying this is Marty Kaplan at the University of Southern California. He has a similar program called Hollywood Health and Society. And one of the things that he did was plant on an episode of, I think it, maybe it was Grey's Anatomy or no, it was a soap opera, a message about breast cancer. And it was woven into the storyline, and they essentially measured audience awareness of this particular fact about breast cancer before and after. And the after, their awareness just went through the roof. I think Jennifer brings up an interesting point because in medical films, I think it does matter whether the science is right, whereas in a film about space aliens, maybe it doesn't. I mean, it would be nice if it were right. But the fact that every time the Starship Enterprise, you know, zimps by the camera, you hear a whoosh. Okay, that's that's just you know dramatic license. Wait, wait. So you wouldn't hear a whoosh? You in space, nobody can hear you whoosh. You don't hear a whoosh. No, there's no air in space. But that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I mean, you can complain, you can note it, you can write it up, you can laugh, whatever. But it doesn't really matter. But in a medical film, you see some guy suffering from some disease, some woman has got some condition, and you know your aunt Flora has the same condition. And they solve the problem in the film, or maybe they don't. And you immediately transfer that idea to you know, your personal lives in a way that you don't when you're watching the Starship Enterprise. Now you talk about aliens in film, and now you do have some experience with this, uh, because you've been an advisor on some films in Hollywood, right? You've I gone have, down yes. The Day the Earth Stood Still? Exactly, the remake. The remake, the remake not the original. So, I know you think it's the original, Molly. <laughs> <laughs> what, was, what was your experience on that, and did you find that the producers were attentive to the advice that you were giving them about the accuracy of their film? Well, what they wanted me to do is just go through and just you know, fix the dialogue so that it sounded more like like real science. And I did that. They accepted about one-third of my suggested edits. One-third. Which I, I regard as a fairly high percentage, I have to say. Then they actually had me on the set uh, up in Vancouver when they were filming because there was a sequence in which the alien, Klaatu, played by Keanu Reeves, uh, actually meets a real scientist and decides, you know, maybe this species is worth saving. <laughs> so, so that's John Cleese as the physicist. And so they needed to be writing equations on the blackboard, and neither Keanu Reeves nor John Cleese is very good at writing equations. So all the equations on the blackboard are actually in my handwriting. And in fact, we had some difficulty in getting Keanu to write the Greek letters quickly enough. Have you worked with Seth, Jennifer? On, uh, yes, I have. On projects? Uh, we were involved in the movie Battleship together, where, uh, again, I mean, uh, aliens. <laughs> it's a game, obviously, but, you know, the minute you try and make a movie out of it, all you have to do at some point is have battleships involved, and the rest is fair game. And they thought, hey, aliens, what could be better? And I thought, aliens, who could be better? Seth. So what kind of... And, and, uh, and other films. I mean, she's being modest. She's actually... We've done several things together. So what's the collaboration like? What kind of conversations pass between the two of you you try to get some of the science onto the big screen. Most of what I do is, you know, contact Seth and give him kind of a background on the project, and then I make sure that, you know, they just end up in a room together so that they can confer. So my job is much more that of matchmaker, and because I know Seth is very, very good at talking about this, and, and he understands the needs of narrative, he knows when poetic license needs to be taken. Uh, and in general, he's personable, so the, uh, the writers like and producers like talking to him. So we go to him a lot for alien questions. And finally, Did you hear that, Molly? Personable. I actually, I spaced out for that last bit about his being personal and agreeable and all of those things. Um, <laughs> so finally, your favorite alien in the movies, what alien would it be and, and why? Well, uh, Galaxy Quest. I absolutely loved the aliens on Galaxy Quest, in part because they were humans, we could relate to them, but that was their humanoid form, but they also had this sort of alien squid-like form that spoke in a language nobody could understand. So they were really trying to deal with 
the issue of how we would communicate and how we would relate to an alien species who looked very, very different from us. On the other hand, they were just so human in terms of their emotional understanding and that they were very childlike. So I think it makes aliens fully-fledged characters as opposed to simply serving a plot point. And for you, Seth? Well, I had lots of favorite aliens. I like the ones in the original <laughs> War of the Worlds because they were so pitiless. Uh, but I also like Michael Rennie as the Klaatu character in the original version of Day the Earth Stood Still. Uh, because Michael Rennie was so well-spoken with his refined British accent, he could get up there and he could read phone books to you, and you would find it very interesting. <laughs> and the question of accuracy with aliens. I mean, we can't be accurate about what an alien would look like or act like, so how does one approach uh, depicting aliens in the movies? Well, that's quite right. Uh, we obviously don't know what they look like, but on the other hand, you, you can require that they don't violate you know, certain very simple engineering considerations, scaling laws as they're called, in terms of the ratio of their size to their strength and so forth. Um, you can also invoke things like, well, if they don't have any appendages, if they don't have arms and legs, they probably can't wield a soldering iron or a pair of pliers, and you're just not going to see or hear from those guys. So considerations like that give you at least some minimal insight into what the aliens might be like. Okay. Thank you, Seth. Well, always a pleasure to talk with you, Miss Bentley. Thank you, Jennifer. Oh, thanks for having me. Jennifer Ouellette is a writer and former director of the National Academy of Sciences Science and Entertainment Exchange. And Seth is, well, he's Seth. Okay, Seth, it looks like, in general, sci-fi films never let the facts get in the way of a good story. Yeah, well, of course, that's true. And as Hollywood will tell you, the story always rules. Meanwhile, we don't need to go to the movies for a science thrill. The real science is pretty exciting. Such as that discovery of more than a thousand other worlds by Kepler. We'll keep monitoring that planet-finding mission. Meanwhile, it's getting a little bit chilly out here, and our work is done. So, uh, all you orbiting orbs, let's go inside. All right, I'll grab the ping pong ball. Can I be sadder next time? <laughs> it's actually nice out. I don't mind standing out here like this. I left a rock in my Jupiter spot in case you need to find it again. Yeah, thanks, Gary. Although a bottle of ammonia probably would have been more appropriate given the atmosphere of that gas giant. Uh, Jay, you can come on in now. What? Well, that's it for our show. Thanks to Barbara Vance, Gary Niederhoff, and Gary, I can thank you directly for all your great work. You're welcome. Keith Rosendahl, thank you, Keith. Oh, you're welcome. And Jay Weiler. Thanks, Jay. I should stay? What? Also, thanks to support from Rena Sholsky-David and Sammy David, the NASA Astrobiology Institute, and the SETI Institute, which produces this show. Also, our listeners. And speaking of you listeners, if you'd like to comment, congratulate, or sound off, please visit our Are We A blog on our website, or our Facebook page. You've been listening to Out of This World on Are We Alone? Guys, do I still need to be in the outer solar system? It's getting cold. Guys? The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.